You're tuned in to More Living with Jim Brogan. Broadcast live from the Brogan Financial Studios at News Talk 98.7, where old-fashioned values, expert knowledge, and genuine understanding come together to give you the retirement straight talk you deserve. Jim's a former National Advisor of the Year recipient and a financial educator, and he's here today to talk about how you can live out the best years of your life. Jim and the Brogan Financial Team have been helping retirees and pre-retirees across the Southeast for over 20 years in their pursuit of financial independence. You can reach them during the week at 865-862-6800. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn, because more living with Jim Brogan starts now. Hello, East Tennessee, and welcome to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. You're listening to News Talk 98.7 WOKI, and you know, your retirement is a very complex machine. It requires a savings and wealth accumulation plan, an investment plan that that matches your goals and risk tolerance, an income plan that can provide stability of income in the short term and growth of income in the long term to fight inflation, and constant upkeep to make sure it's meeting your goals. It's also important to include estate and legacy planning when thinking about about making it all the way through retirement and leaving something for your loved ones. But that's easier said than done, especially if you want to do a good job. And without careful planning and discussion, you could end up with a disjointed retirement and an estate plan that can wind up hurting you and your loved ones. So today, we're going to be getting into the basics of an estate plan. (coughs) We're going to talk about the role of real estate in your retirement and how does real estate fold into your estate plan. What are some risks there? We'll talk about the Roth IRA and and the estate plan because even with the passage of the SECURE Act and the SECURE Act 2.0, Roth IRA is still a wonderful tool for using leaving tax-free money to your heirs. And then in our last segment, I am going to talk about the upcoming year. What do investors, what are the investors' top seven concerns about the markets in 2024, and how might the election affect the stock market and the economy? So that's what we're going to dive into today. First, I'm going to really talk about is your estate plan airtight? And and when I talk about estate planning, a lot of times people feel like it's for people that have a you know high net worth, several million dollars or more. Um, and even you young folks that are listening to this show this morning, I would say if you own something and you love somebody, you need an estate plan. You need legal documents. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm still dealing with a residual cough. I know it's been going around and I certainly hope all of you are healthy as we are, we've headed into the new year here. Um, but if you own something and you love somebody, you need an estate plan and people often overlook their legal documents. You know, estate planning is not easy. Talking about what happens in the event of your passing away is a difficult thing to do, let alone take the necessary action to set up legal documentation and the financial strategies that plan for the event. But it's so important to make sure your overall legacy and estate plan are intact for yourself and your loved ones. 
Another beneficial side effect of estate planning is it can help you preserve your wealth through retirement and avoid running out of money. That's right, an estate plan actually does help also take care of you while you're still alive. So let's let's kind of dive into this to talk about what you need. Now, certainly will the, the will is the backbone of an estate plan. Everybody needs a will. Even if you are planning on leaving everything to your family with a living trust, which we'll get into here in just a bit, everybody still needs to have a will. A will is a legal document that says who gets what. Now, what are some common mistakes that we see with the will? Well, one of the most common is understanding what the will does cover and just as importantly, what the will does not cover. You know, in, 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 in estate planning laws and rules, if you have named a beneficiary on an account, let's say your IRA or your 401k, or if you've named a beneficiary on your life insurance, or you set up payable on death, a POD on your bank account. That's basically naming a beneficiary. The beneficiary designation under today's current laws, the beneficiary document supersedes anything that's in a will. And this is probably one of the most overlooked, maybe the most overlooked area that we see in estate planning today is understanding that beneficiary designations supersede the will. So it doesn't matter what's in the will, the beneficiary designation will rule. And we see mistakes all the time, especially with things like you get a divorce, you, you, you divide up your assets, you do all that stuff, you draft new legal documents, but did you change your beneficiary designation on your 401k? And by the way, that's an important very important thing because with a 401k, you are required to either name your spouse as 100% sole beneficiary, or if you're not wanting the spouse to be 100% sole beneficiary, they have to sign a waiver under the law. Now, that's also important if you're remarried. You know, what if you got remarried a couple of years ago and you kind of keep all your finances separate. Maybe it's a blended family. And you know that when, you know, you want to know that when you pass away, your assets go to your kids. Well, the problem with that is that under the law, under ERISA law, the beneficiary, the, the spouse has an automatic right to the 401k plan in the event of death and has to sign a waiver to waive that right. And that waiver has to be signed after you are married. The prenuptial under the law does not apply to a beneficiary waiver on a 401k. So it's very important to understand the differences in how beneficiary designations work and how the will works and what the will does and most importantly does not cover. Now then... Some of the other mistakes we see, you know, one would be not keeping your documents up to date. How often should you update your will? <clears throat> My rule of thumb is about every four to five years you should be 
at least reviewing your will and maybe checking in with your attorney to see if, you know, there have been any changes in the rules or the laws or the Tennessee statutes. And just as an example, you know, the SECURE Act was passed effective January 1 of 2020, and the SECURE Act changed how retirement accounts can be distributed. Now, not everybody needs to change their beneficiary designations or their legal planning, but many people and many of our own clients, we've needed to reassess their beneficiary designations because of the new law in the SECURE Act of how retirement accounts pass to your loved ones. Now, as far as updating the estate plan, the, the one thing I would add there, every four to five years, or if you have a major life event in your family, and a major life event would be a marriage, a divorce, a birth, or a death in your family then it's very, very important to under, to update your plan. Now, please understand, I'm not an attorney. Um, I am certified in estate and trust services. I'm not an attorney. Some of the attorneys I talk to say, you know, update your will every two or three years. I have found every four or five years seems to be pretty sufficient, or if you have a major life event. And that is one of the major mistakes we see is not keeping it up to date enough. The other major mistake that I typically see with a will is not having a, a successor executor. Your executor is who you name to administer your affairs when you have passed away. Now, also understand the will is an at-death document, meaning the will is meaningless until the day that you die. But then once you do die... The executor is in charge of administering the assets that are in your probate estate. Um, now, if you name, that's important because if you name a beneficiary, remember the will does not govern that asset. So the will is not in your probate estate. And the executor, uh, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. The will is in your probate estate, but your beneficiary designation is not. So your executor does not have the power to administer the benefits of your retirement account, as an example, for your beneficiary. Only the beneficiary themselves can actually administer those things. But everybody needs an executor for any assets that are in your probate estate. And one of the problems is that I often see is maybe you're married and you name your spouse and you don't have a fallback. Or what if you only, what if you're not married and you only have one child, you name your child and there's no fallback? What if your executor cannot serve in that role? Who will be the executor? That is so crucially important because if you don't have a successor executor, it'd be the same as not even naming an executor if your primary person cannot fulfill that role or is no longer around. Same thing goes for your powers of attorney. There are two powers of attorney. There's a financial power of attorney that allows people to pay your bills and administer your affairs while you're alive. And then there is your medical power of attorney, which is the person that can make your medical decisions while you are alive. Now, both of these documents help take care of you while you're living, if you remember I said the will is an at-death document, it is meaningless until the day that you die. So your executor, while you're alive, can't do anything. 
while you're alive, it would be your power of attorney that can act on your behalf. So it is important to understand these distinctions. And again, you should keep those documents updated. And on your powers of attorney, you also need to think about if your primary person you've named, your power of attorney, cannot act, who is going to be your power of attorney? And again, this takes care of you while you're alive. Now, when we come back from our first break, I'm going to dive into do you need a trust? Because this is also a very overlooked thing. This is one of the most common things I get asked about when it comes to estate planning. Jim, do I need a trust? Why might you need a trust? There are two big reasons you might need a trust, or, or maybe you don't need a trust. So when we come back, we'll talk about trust planning. So stay with us. You're listening to More Living with Jim Brogan right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to More Living right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. I'm your host, Jim Brogan. I do want to mention uh, my next class is at the University of Tennessee. The University of Tennessee's class, Financial Survival for Retirement, is on January the 25th and February 1st. It is a two-night class. And I cover seven main things that I think everybody needs to understand about their financial planning as they head into retirement. Now, one of those things is estate planning, legal documents, common mistakes. We dive in a little bit more detail for sure about how this stuff works. But we talk about other things, investments. How do you invest for income? What about the income plan, Social Security election? What about tax planning? one of the most overlooked areas. And, you know, typically you have more control of your income taxes in retirement than at any other time of your life. So if you'd like more information, it's at the UT Downtown Conference Center. Again, that's on Thursdays, January the 25th and February 1st. It is a two-night class. You can go to financialsurvivalforretirement.com and you can download a syllabus and get more information. Again, that's financialsurvivalforretirement.com. You can also click to register uh, for that class. Now, we're talking about estate planning in the first half of today's show, and we're talking about, I've talked about wills, legal documents, powers of attorney. One of the most common questions I'm, I'm asked is, Jim, do I need a trust? And... Now, again, I'm not an attorney, um, but when I'm asked if I need a trust, we work with a lot of local attorneys in the area. Uh, many times we have clients that want us to work with their already existing attorney, which is also fine. Um, but we kind of help coordinate everything and make sure everything fits together. You know, as I said, the will does not control things that have named beneficiaries, also does not control things that are jointly owned. So it's important to understand how those assets transfer and work and that all the dots connect. But I'm also often asked, Jim, do I need a trust? And and there's two different reasons that you might want to trust. And one of those reasons has to do with setting things up prior to passing away and establishing a trust prior to passing away. The other deals with having a trust that protects assets after you've passed away. And these are two very distinctly different things and different needs. So let's talk about the first. Why would you create a trust while you're still living? The most common reason is ease of administration upon your death. 
How easy is it for your loved ones to deal with your estate after you have passed away? And the most common vehicle to make that easy is what's called a living trust, a revocable living trust, where you put your assets in the living trust before you die, and then upon your death, anything in that living trust does not go through the probate process. So it makes administration a good bit easier. Now, we don't want to go too far with that because creating a living trust in your legal plan is a good bit more expensive than simply doing everything with your wills and going through probate. And in Tennessee, probate is not a terribly complex thing. Uh, Tennessee is one of the friendlier states in the country in terms of our estate planning laws. Um, but it is a little, you know, it takes time. It's not private. And it does tie up assets. So, you know, for large estates, many people like to avoid that probate process. So creating a living trust and putting your assets in that trust prior to death is all about ease of administration, making it easier for the loved ones. Now, then the second reason people sometimes need a trust is to control the assets upon their death. And by the way, there are other reasons to create a trust while you're still alive. I'm just saying the main one is the living trust for ease of administration. But then control of assets, and where we see this the most is upon your death. You know, it may be you're in a marriage, you have kids, you have some substantial assets. If you were to pass away, you know, first, you want your assets to benefit your spouse but you want to protect those assets for your kids. Like what if your spouse remarries? And you know, you shouldn't make assumptions with this kind of thing because oftentimes I hear, well, Jim, I have total confidence that my wife or my husband would leave things in place to benefit my kids even if they remarry. But let's look at scenarios that can happen. You pass away, your husband or wife inherits everything, They get remarried. They still have named your kids as beneficiaries and in your wills and legal documents. Um, But then they have issues. Maybe they lose capacity. And who's their power of attorney at that point? You've now got a new spouse involved that you probably didn't even know while you were alive. And are they going to protect your kids? So having assets go to trust for a surviving spouse oftentimes is done for control reasons, to make sure that if there's a subsequent marriage or there might not be a marriage, but you don't want that spouse to be taken advantage of as they age, you would have things go into a trust to protect them for the loved ones, for the, for the other kids or for any other heirs that you have. Um, you might have a special needs child uh, that that is uh, uh, that is eligible for for needs based government benefits, and if they receive too much money directly, it would disqualify those needs based benefits. So you might want them to go into trust your assets to go into trust because they don't own the trust, and so they haven't taken possession of those assets. Or it may just be the kids. You know, you could leave kids too much money too soon. And you want to protect those kids from themselves. 
And so you don't want them to just get everything either at your death or when they turn 18 in most states or 21, but when they become a legal adult. So you have them go into trust until they're a certain age, or maybe they draw income until they're a certain age. When, when you have that type of a trust that exists after your death, you really can, can write it however you want. But the more complex it is, the more expensive the legal fees are going to be. But when I hear that question, Jim, do I need a trust? Those are the two most common reasons. One would be, and they're completely different. One is ease of administration upon your death, not having to deal with probate and things like that. And then number, and, and if you don't have to deal with probate, it might be, oh, in the end run, might be less expensive. Even though the trust up front is more expensive, but, but then your kids maybe don't feel like they have to hire an attorney to help them with the probate process and things like that. But then the second reason is for control. It could be a surviving spouse in a second marriage. It could be your kids. It could be a special needs child. There are other reasons you might want control. But those are the common things of what I see as far as <clears throat> do you need a trust. Now, the other thing I want to mention is, you, is how retirement accounts are impacted by your trust planning. You know, you cannot put a retirement account into a trust. If you did that, it would be an impermissible transaction. It, you would have to pay all the, it'd be considered a taxable distribution. All of the income taxes would come due on that retirement account, the IRA, the 401k, whatever. So you cannot title a retirement account into a trust. So what happens with the trust when you pass away? Or excuse me, the, the retirement account, the IRA, the 401k. Well, that's the beneficiary designation. If you want it to go into a trust for control reasons, then you have to name the trust as the beneficiary. But that does complicate the tax considerations for that retirement account. Remember, when you have an IRA or a 401k or any other retirement account other than a Roth, you've not paid any of the income tax on most, if not all, of that money. So when the money comes out as a distribution, it is most of it, if not all of it, is taxed for ordinary income. Well, if you put it into a, into a trust, it triggers all the income taxes. Now, you can name the trust as a beneficiary, but that does trigger additional tax ramifications. So that has to be very, very carefully planned. Anytime you're doing any kind of trust planning, whether, number one, you cannot put that in a living trust or it would trigger all the income taxes. And secondly, if you name the trust as a beneficiary, it does create more tax complications in terms of what your kids can or cannot do or your spouse can or cannot do upon your death. It's not ideal from a tax perspective to leave retirement accounts to a trust for your spouse. However, you might need to do that for control reasons if you're concerned about a blended family or second marriage down the line. So all of these things are very, very important. You know, I've just, in this first two segments, I brought up things many people don't talk about or look at or connect the dots. Again, I do cover this as one of the seven key topics in my class that I teach at the, through the University of Tennessee, Financial Survival for Retirement, 
Uh, it is on Thursdays, January the 25th and February 1st, so coming up here in just a little under two weeks. You can go to financialsurvivalforretirement.com to find out more information. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk about real estate as your retirement plan and how that can impact your estate plan, not only while you're alive, but when you're gone. So stay with us. You're listening to More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. We're living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. You're listening to News Talk 98.7 WOKI. We're with you every Saturday, 9 to 10 a.m., and again from 3 to 4 p.m. You can also catch all of our shows podcast on our website. Go to broganfinancial.com and click on radio. Now, real estate can be a very important part of a retirement plan. While you're alive, certainly, then there are implications of transferring real estate upon your death. So let's kind of consider some of that. You know, whether you're downsizing your home in retirement or you're adding real estate to your investment portfolio, purchasing a vacation property in your later years, or investing in a rental home for income, real estate can be a crucial factor to your retirement plan. Knowing your real estate options and strategizing your current real estate situation for the short and long term is crucial, both while you're alive and upon your death. Now, in investing in real estate, there are, generally speaking, two overall different ways to invest in real estate. One is to passively invest in real estate. And when you passively invest in real estate, you're owning a real estate portfolio, but you're not having to manage that portfolio. So, you know, you might invest in a a mutual fund that invests in real estate trusts. Or you could directly invest in real estate trusts, REITs. And when you invest in real estate trusts, there are two ways to do that. Uh, or, or two different types of real estate trusts. One is is a publicly traded real estate trust. You can buy that on the open market, just like a stock. <clears throat> and then there are private real estate trusts that do not trade publicly and are considered mostly largely illiquid investments that you cannot get in and out of quickly. Um, but that's a way to passively real invest in real estate. There are also mutual funds that focus on real estate investment. Maybe real estate stocks and public real estate trusts. Then there's also direct investment where you're directing directly into an investment like a rental property or a second home, a vacation home or something like that. When you do direct investment, you are directly investing in that property and you have to deal with any potential management of that property. If it's a rental home, you've either got to do the management or hire somebody to do the management. If you're investing in raw land, you know, not really any management, but then you've got to be the one to, to maybe sell it when you want to get out of it. And then it's largely illiquid. Uh, both of these types of real estate can be very, very good investment. Um, and, and they're different types of investment because when you directly invest in real estate, you're usually focusing in a specific area. You're usually not going to be as diversified. There's going to be management of that property. 
there can be very nice income from that property. But because it's management, you have to manage it, your yield, your income from that property, your net income should be higher than the typical return you would get on a passive investment. You know, if I can passively invest in something and make X percent per year over time, then if I'm going to invest directly invest in real estate and I'm going to have to actively manage that real estate, I need to earn more because I need to be paid for that management. Or you use that money to pay someone else and your net return is still just as high as a, as a traditional passive investment. Now, real estate, you know, when you invest directly in real estate, one of the challenges, I mentioned it's not terribly liquid. You can't get out of it anytime you want. And the other issue is you really, it's not actively priced. You know, when there's a real estate crash, you don't get a statement every month telling you what your property is worth. Whereas if you invest in a publicly traded real estate trust or a mutual fund that buy, that invests in real estate, you get priced, that's priced every day. You know exactly what all those real estate holdings are worth. It can give you a false sense of security when there's a real estate decline. So you have to be very careful with that. But both of those types of real estate investment can be very, very effective. I would probably mention it just, it is important to understand the benefit and the importance of diversification. Meaning you're not just in real estate and even within the real estate category, you're not too focused in one thing or one area. Now, one good thing about East Tennessee is in our area, as we've discussed on our show with real estate experts that we've had on in the past, and as many of you know who've lived here a long time, our real estate market in East Tennessee is more insulated from real estate market and economic swings than many other areas of the country. And a lot of that is due to the large public employers we have in the area, the state of Tennessee, the University of Tennessee, all the Oak Ridge contractors with the Department of Energy. <clears throat> Just the, the, the East Tennessee area itself tends to be more recession-proof, um, but it is still a risk. So, you know, real estate is not a risk-free investment, um, and if you directly invest in the real estate, just because you're not getting a statement showing a decline in value does not mean that the, that the asset is not going down in value. Now, in your estate plan, there are some very, very important considerations with real estate. Um, the first one is to understand that capital gains on real estate, in the event of your death, they go away. Your kids do not have to pay capital gains tax on the value of your real estate upon your death. Now, after you die, if the real estate goes up in value, they have to pay gains after the date of death. But the gains prior to death under current law, they go away. And one tax benefit of real estate is you can depreciate real estate over time. And that recovery of tax basis upon death also goes away. So that's a big thing. There's even huge tax benefits. It's called a step up in tax basis at death. <clears throat> now, that's important to know because if you 
if you put your child's name on your real estate, they're not going to get that full benefit of the step up in tax basis at death. Or if you just go ahead and give your house to your child, you know, what if you did a life estate, you give the house to the child, you're going to live in the house. Well, if it's titled to the child, they do not get that step up in base. In, they don't get that tax benefit at death. So it is very important to understand tax ramifications of real estate, especially upon your death. And then the other thing, though, is to understand direct real estate investment is not liquid. And if you invest in non-public real estate trusts, non-public REITs, they are not liquid, terribly liquid either. And so any liquidity needs at your death for your estate, for your family, for tax reasons, if most or if not most of your stuff is in illiquid real estate, that could be a real issue upon your death and needs to be carefully considered in your estate plan. So when you look at the you know real estate, there's a lot of great benefits. It is important, in my opinion, not to be overinvested in one category. Understanding the invest the difference in direct investment and passive investment understanding tax considerations and estate planning considerations because just as I talked about retirement accounts earlier and how it complicates estate planning because beneficiary designations are different from the will, real estate has a whole different world of complications that just have to be considered in your overall financial plan. Now, as we head into 2024... Um, what are the, what are the main concerns that investors have for the year 2024, and how might the co- upcoming presidential election affect the economy and the stock market? So stay with us. We'll talk about that in our last segment. You're listening to More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back. This is More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Be sure to check us out online. You can hear all of our podcasts. Go to BroganFinancial.com and click on radio. Also, all of our upcoming classes through the University of Tennessee and Pellissippi State Community College are on our website. If you, if you go to BroganFinancial.com and click on classes, it's got our full spring schedule. My next class comes up a week from Thursday. It's two nights, Thursdays, January the 25th and February 1st, FinancialSurvivalForRetirement.com. Through the University of Tennessee at their downtown conference center, there is free parking across the street. You can go to financialsurvivalforretirement.com for more information and to click and to register with the University of Tennessee. Are you concerned about how the election year may affect your investments, the economy, your market performance, your financial plan? What are investors worried about as we are now into 2024? In a survey by invest, recently by Investopedia, over half of the investors surveyed say that they are worried about the 2024 U.S. presidential election affecting their investment portfolios. 61%. It is the number one concern that investors surveyed by Investopedia have about 2024. Now, I've got a full list here, 
and there's, you know, close to 15 different things. The top seven stand out. Over a third of all investors are worried about these seven things. Um, number one is the election. And I'm going to come back to that. Should you be worried about how the election may affect your portfolio? And, and most importantly, what should you be doing about all of this? Now, number two is war in the Middle East. Almost half of investors are concerned about war in the Middle East. Now then, a recession is also up at 48%. Inflation is a top concern. U.S. relations with China is also a top concern at 47%. Persistently high interest rates comes in at 40% of investors are concerned about that. And finally, war in Ukraine, over a third of investors are concerned about how war in Ukraine may affect their investments. So of these top seven, there's a few things that jump out to me. Number The first is number one, the 2024 election is overwhelmingly the number one concern. And then the second thing is three of these top 70 deal with geopolitical factors, the Middle East, China, Ukraine. Now, my comment on all of this would be, number one, we can't control any of this stuff, right? But number two, markets are completely unpredictable in the short term. You know, think back to when the war in Ukraine started. Many people were concerned about the market. You may have been concerned about your investment portfolio. Yet the stock market is up a good amount since Russia went into Ukraine. See, what we've seen with regional conflicts around the world is typically they can create short-term volatility, but in the long term they don't seem to have a meaningful impact on the markets. Now, if that regional conflict in turns into something more substantial, it is something to certainly keep our eyes on, but wars as a rule in the long term don't seem to have a meaningful impact. Um, now, the, what about the election? The election historically, election years have really not had a meaningfully negative impact on the market. As a matter of fact, I went back to 1960. We looked at every presidential cycle since 1960. Only two saw a stock market that was negative in the presidential election year. Only two. And the average investment for all of the election years since 1928, so this would include the Great Depression, all election years since 20, 1928, the average return was 11.5% in the S&P 500 according to First Trust. The average S&P return in all other years was 9.8%. So in other words, typically election years typically can be somewhat good for the market. Now that doesn't mean that's going to happen this year. You know, we, we just don't know. Markets in their nature are unpredictable. We do have geopolitical risks. Bottom line is most of these things that investors are worried about that I, that I went through, most of these things can certainly create short-term market volatility. However, most of these things don't seem to have a substantial long-term effect on, in, on the investment climate. Now, what is long-term? 
It's not two or three years. Long term, I would say, is at least six to seven years. True long term, if you're just invested in the U.S. stock market only and you don't have any other diversification in your portfolio other than stocks and and mainly U.S. stocks, you really should be looking at 12 to 15 years would be the long term. We have had decades where the market has been negative as measured by the S&P 500. 2000, you go January 1 of 2000 to January 1 of 2011, the stock market was negative for those 10 years, or excuse me, January 2010. So be very careful about trying to time markets. You know, most people saw anything from muted stock market returns in 2023 to even stock market decline in 2023. And look at all the things that were going on. We had increasing interest rates. We had war in Ukraine. We had the the issue with, with Israel and with Palestine. We've got the concerns about China. Yet the market was up a good amount, especially with the rally in November and December of this year. So if you would have tried to time that and get out of the market, you'd be kind of in a pickle right now because what do you do? The market's rallied pretty substantially. Is the market going to continue to rally? We don't know. I could look at things on the horizon. I could make a case that we're on the, we're on the front end of another bull market run for the next six or seven years, meaning there could be corrections in there, maybe a bear market, but more of a bull run. We also could be on the start. I could make a case that we're on the start of a bear market, especially if you look at valuations of U.S. stocks. So we just don't know, and one of the most key components is that understanding taking risk with your investments, you should be focusing on the long term, at least six or seven years And only six or seven years if you are very, very diversified and not just in stocks, um, but that you're looking at the longer term. Time in the market is much, much more important than your timing of the market. We know all of these concerns investors have in 2024 can create short-term volatility, but typically do not have long-term impact. Thank you for tuning in this week. Uh, We've discussed your wealth, your estate planning, and your financial planning because greater finances can lead to the best years of your life and you being able to live the way you want to live your life. Uh, Many thanks to Richie for engineering the show today. Many thanks to Jill for helping produce the show. Thank you for tuning in this week. Check us out online, broganfinancial.com. You've been listening to More Living with Jim Brogan, only on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. The views expressed by Jim Brogan and his guests are not that of Cumulus Media. Any discussion of financial, legal, and tax planning strategies is not intended to be individualized advice and is general in nature. Always consult with your advisor for advice specific to your needs. This program's content does not represent a recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment by Jim Brogan or Brogan Financial Incorporated.